Good luck, man. Uh, well, if you're staying in here, I'll invite you to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Psalm 95. Uh, typically, throughout the summers, we'll spend time preaching through the book of Psalms so that uh, eventually we'll make it our way through the entire book of Psalm. And so today we're going to be in Psalm 95. This is what is called an enthronement psalm or a kingly psalm. Kingly psalms emphasize the might, the majesty, the glory, the splendor of our God and our response to him. Kingly Psalms pick up on the theme of God's rule that runs all throughout Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. These Psalms emphasize that God has no rival or equal. When we come into Scripture, we don't see a world in which uh, there are opposite but equal forces. There's no yin and yang. God is not uh, God is not good, and Satan is his equal um, but evil foe. Rather, when we open God's Word, we encounter an infinitely great God who is supremely good, righteous, and powerful. And it's this God who we see who has made us, who's made humanity in his image. And because we are made in his image, uh, not that we are made to then worship him. And only him, only God is the one who can then satisfy our souls. And so that's often what kingly Psalms will do. They'll show the glory and the majesty of our God. And that because of who he is, as those made in his image, we are called to worship him, and we, we ought to desire to worship him. To worship him is truly the delight of our souls. And so today in Psalm 95, we're going to be reminded of his glory, reminded of his majesty, reminded of his splendor, and then the psalmist is going to call us to worship him, to come and fall down and bow down before him. So the main point this morning is that there is no greater pursuit of our soul than, than to behold the glory of our gods. I feel like I'm tongue-tied today. You ever feel like that? You're just like, man, things aren't coming out. Which, you know, my role is to speak, so that's not helpful. Um, there's no greater pursuit of our soul than to behold the glory of our God. Uh, so I want to invite you to stand, and we're going to read through Psalm 95 this morning. It says, Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah and on the day of Massah in the wilderness when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years, I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Let me pray. Father, Father, we come to you now today and we see that you are our rock. You are the king of kings. You are our maker and our great and perfect shepherd. 
Lord, I pray, give us eyes to see today. Open our eyes to the beauty of your glory, which is contained in your word today. May we see it. May we delight in it. May our, may our hearts and our souls be thrilled at the glory that you possess, God. And Lord, I pray that because of, of your glory, we'd worship you and that we would see worship is to be the daily activity of our lives. Lord, may every day be filled with worship to you because of who you are. And so, Lord, bless the time that we have now. Help us to see the truth and the beauty of your word. In your name, Jesus, amen. You all may be seated. Uh, so what I want to do is, is I want to spend time uh, looking at the description that the psalmist gives of God. He, he describes God in four ways in our text. So I simply want to highlight that, and then we'll, we'll, we'll go from there and look at what he calls us to do. But number one, we see he is the rock of our salvation. We see that in verse one. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. All throughout the Old Testament, God is called our rock. In Psalm 94, verse 22, we read, But the Lord has become my stronghold, and my God, the rock of my refuge. Psalm 18, verse 2, The Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield, and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. So what does it mean for God to be our rock, or as the psalm says, the rock of our salvation, it, it means God alone is our hope. It means he's faithful. He's the firm foundation for your feet. Um, perhaps you like swimming. During the summers, we love to go swimming. Yesterday, we went and jumped into Long Lake. And, and have you ever been out swimming for a while and you become tired? What do you do at that point? We often, we often try to put our feet down, unless you're in Long Lake and you don't like touching all the seaweed. But typically, we like to put our feet down because what are we trying to do at that moment? We're looking for a foundation, something firm, something strong to hold us up at that moment. And when God is our rock, it means he's our refuge, our source of protection. He's the solid ground that we can stand on. And, and as people, we want, Something We want someone to trust in. Out of our sinfulness, we'll look for, our, we'll look for um, security in finances, in technology, in relationship, in science, and about a thousand other things. But the truth is, and we know it, that there is nothing in this world that truly can offer hope and security. There's nothing in this world that's strong enough. There's nothing good enough. There's nothing righteous enough to be our solid rock. When we come into scripture, we see that there's a God who stands outside of creation. He's the creator. He's existed eternally. He's the one who's made all things, and therefore, he is the rock and the hope that we can truly trust in. It's because God is eternal, unchanging, and all-powerful that he is our rock. He's not affected by natural disasters. He's not affected by the changes in the stock market, the climate change, or health, or anything else. God alone is worthy to be the rock of our salvation. Next, we see he's the king of kings. Verse three, we read, the Lord is a great God, a king above all other gods. The point the psalmist is making and what kingly and enthronement psalms do is show that our God has no rival. 
There's no God, there's no power, force, person, or entity that threatens or even challenges the rule of the God of the Bible. And in order to show this, the psalmist says, look what he holds in his hand. Verse four, God holds the depths of the earth. He holds mountains, like, like Mount Rainier. just holds it in his hand. Mount Everest, K2. All the seas, all the dry land, I mean, just, he holds it. They're like, they're like crumbs in his hand. Isaiah 40, verse 12 says that with the span of his hand, he measures the cosmos. That's quite large. Psalm 97, verse 4 and 5 He says, his lightnings light up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before him. So the very things he holds, the strongest, most powerful things in creation that we would say, Mount Mount Rainier, that's sure. That's a firm foundation. It melts before him to show his, his strength and his supremacy. That when we come into the Bible, we are coming into a God who's infinitely strong. We also see he's the maker of everything. Psalm 6, or verse 6 says, kneel before the Lord, our maker. The word maker, it it could refer to the fact that God has created everything or that he specifically has saved and and formed a people that would worship him. And both are true. We see in Genesis 1, he speaks creation into existence. We see in Exodus chapter 20 that he is the one who brought Israel out of Egypt, formed them into a people that they would be his people who would worship him. Next, we see that God is the shepherd of his people. In verse 7, we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. The implication is clear. God is his shepherd, or God is the shepherd, and we are his people. And we see this actually all throughout scripture. In fact, one of the most beloved Psalms is Psalm 23, which says, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. When we come into creation, what we see is not only an infinitely powerful, infinitely strong God who transcends all creation, but he's also a God who's very near to us, who knows us, Creation is not like a clock that God has simply wound up and then he walks away and just occasionally checks on it. We had one of those grandfather clocks growing up. Maybe you had one of those and you wind them up and you walk away. Like a week later, you know, you have to wind it up again. That's not what creation is to God where he just winds it up every once in a while. But rather he's the shepherd. He's intimately involved at all times. He's constantly caring and providing for his people And before we move on, it's important to know that all of these descriptions ultimately are pointing to Jesus Christ, the Son of God, which we see in the New Testament. When we come into the book of Hebrews, we read that Jesus is the very radiance of God's glory, which means he is the glory of God. We see throughout the New Testament, Jesus co-equal and co-eternal with the Father. What's true of the Father is true of the Son. This is why In John 14, verse 9, when talking to Philip, Jesus says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. The point is, is that when we come into the New Testament and we read about these descriptions of God, we would know that they're true of the Son. And so I just want to spend a moment. Jesus, the Son of God, is the rock of our salvation. He's the means 
in which the Father has provided for us to be saved. Jesus is the hope of the world. He's the way, the truth, the life. Paul says in Ephesians 2.20 that he's the cornerstone that the church is built upon. Many of you know the lyrics of, of the song Christ, the solid rock I stand. I won't sing it, don't worry. I'll make this go really bad. But the chorus says, on Christ, the solid rock I stand, everything else is sinking sand, everything else is sinking sand. God has given us Jesus Christ, his son, as the only means in which we can be saved, forgiven, adopted into his family. Jesus is the rock of our salvation. If we trust in anything else, it's trusting in sinking sand. We see that also Jesus is the king of kings. Jesus died, he was buried, then he rose, and we just said this as Woody led us through the Apostles' Creed, and then he ascended to the right hand of God, where what does he do right now? He sits on the throne with the Father, ruling over all creation. He's the king of kings, which is why in Matthew 28, 18, as he's given the great commission, he says, I have been given all authority and power. Jesus, the Son of God, possesses all authority, all power. Jesus is also the creator of all things. We see that the Father is the one who ordains creation, but specifically in the New Testament, we see Jesus is the one who accomplished it. Like Colossians 1.16 says, For by Christ all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. See, Jesus is the one who creates all things. We see Jesus is the good shepherd. In John chapter 10, verse 11, he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. At the cross, Jesus dies so we, who because of sin are like wandering sheep, would be saved and brought into the fold of God so that he would be our perfect shepherd and he would care for us. Jesus is the shepherd who provides for our wants, provides for our needs, and he doesn't do this in some abstract way. Remember, God's not only transcendent, meaning far above all things, removed from creation, but he's also near to creation. He sees everything, knows everything, walks with you, which is why John 10, 14 says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just think about those words. Those words, that truth ought to thrill your soul. If you have believed in Jesus Christ, Jesus knows you. Like he doesn't just know your name. He knows everything there is about you. You have been adopted into the family of God. He knows all that you're going through, all your worries, all your needs, all your trials. And because he's the good shepherd, he cares and provides for his sheep. That's what we see as we come into this enthronement psalm. We're, we're given a glimpse into the God of the Bible, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And so, so what's the point? Why is the psalmist like like a photographer does with a camera as he focuses the camera lens, the psalmist has focused our eyes and our heart and our heart and our mind on the very glory of God. Why does he do this? One word, worship. 
He's moving us to worship on the basis of God's supreme worth and his glory. The psalmist commands us to worship God. And so I want us to to look at the command to worship. In verses 1 and 6, they start out with the word come. And these words are in the imperative, meaning they're commands. Now, this is not like a command that a parent gives a child, eat your Brussels sprouts. And just so you know, I do like vegetables, but Brussels sprouts are terrible. And don't tell me you know how to cook them like they're terrible. (laughs) Like, let's just be clear. There's some vegetables that shouldn't be like vegetables. Like, we shouldn't eat them. They're nasty. We can give you a a personal story from our home at one point. When we had Brussels sprouts, we don't do that anymore. Um, But I'm not going to do that here. So the command... Come, come and worship, come fall down. It is a command. It's the necessary. This is not optional. It's the necessary response of a believer to God, but it's also what your heart wants to do. Do you get it? It's, it's both. Think of it like this. When my kids were younger, and this is like the joy of every parent when they have young kids, um, when you come home from work and they hear the door open and they hear the voice of the father, what do they do? They drop everything and they come running to the front door and you hear the word daddy being screamed all throughout the house and then they jump without looking, don't even care what's in your hands, knowing that you will catch them. (laughs) Now my wife could say, run to your father, but they're already doing that also, right? So she could command them, but it's also the desire of their heart. And if little children run into the arms of their fathers because of his love for them, then how much more do we run to the great God who is the rock of our salvation and the shepherd of our souls? Think about it. This is why the psalmist says, sing, make a joyful noise. Come into his presence with thanksgiving. Sing songs of praise. The greatness of our God causes our souls to burst forth in praise and joy. Look at verse six. The psalmist says, come, bow down, kneel before God. This worship encompasses our hearts, our minds, our voice, our bodies. I think this is why Paul says in in Romans 12, one, our bodies are to be living sacrifices to God. Our entire life, everything we do is for the very worship of God. So then you might say, well, but we don't always see that. Why doesn't humanity worship God? We could spend a whole bunch of time here, but we'll just give a few words. What we see all throughout God's word is once sin comes into the world, sin corrupts our hearts, so we do not want God. Sin causes us to think that the crumbs of creation are greater than the glory of the creator. Sin causes us to be foolish and delight in things that cannot truly satisfy us. But this is why God saves us. This is what we see all throughout the Old Testament and New Testament, is that when God saves us, he transforms us. He does what we're told in 2 Corinthians. He makes us into a new creation. He gives us a new heart that no longer despises God's rule, but delights in it. 
We've been given new eyes that now we see God, we behold him, and we love him. We want to run towards him. The only right and worthy and acceptable response to God is praise and worship. And one of the, this is why one of the reasons when we gather, we sing as a church. We're commanded to sing, but, but we ought to come ready to sing to our God with, with praise in our hearts because of all that he has done. In fact, right now in Revelation, we are told that the heavenly beings are worshiping God. They're crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is to come. That's going on constantly in the heavens right now. Songs, praise, worship. And one day when, when Christ returns and makes all things new, we will be for him, be before him, and we'll worship him at all times. And some of you are going, really? We're going to sing the whole time? Maybe. And guess what? If we do, we'll be thrilled the entire time. The command to sing should not feel like the command to walk the plank. And some of you guys, and I'm using that specifically to men, you act like that. You talk like that. You feel like that. You need to pray about that. Pray that you'd be excited with the very joy and glory of God. Our songs, when we sing, is to be the explosion of joy in our hearts for God. Just as you cannot watch your child take their first steps without, without screaming and clapping, you cannot behold the glory and splendor of God and not be filled with praise. And so if you're a guy here, or a woman, specifically I'm picking on guys, pray. Pray that you'd be moved to worship. Pray that you would grow in your affection and your joy and your desire to sing praises to God. John Piper says, praise is the summit of satisfaction that comes from a living fellowship with God. You get that? It's the summit of satisfaction. There's nothing greater than your heart just giving freedom to the joy that's in you, to the glory and majesty of our God. So that's, that's the first half of the psalm. He says, this is our God. He's the rock of our salvation. He's the king of kings. He's our maker. He's our shepherd. Worship him. Run to him. What else would we do? But then he, he's going to move from the command to worship God, and he's going to warn us from forgetting about God. Now you might say, well, if the natural disposition of the Christian heart is to praise God, then why, why are we given a warning? Well, both commands and warnings all throughout Scripture are a means in which God uses to instruct us on how to live a godly life. And we do this as parents, right? In the morning you say, make your bed, the command, right? You have a desired outcome in their room, cleanliness. Or you could say, if you don't make your bed, you will not have dessert. There's a warning there. If you don't do something, then, then there's going to be consequences for that. But, but both of them are for the intended goal of moving the child towards obedience. And so when we come and we see commands and warnings in Scripture, they function as a means of instructing you and I, God's children, on how we live a godly faithful life to God. So let's look at the warning. 
The warning of forgetfulness. Beginning at verse 7, the author, the author says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah and as on the day at Massa in the wilderness. So you might say, well, what's that being referred to? Now, if you have a study Bible, it's probably going to give you a little note that directs you back to Exodus 17. And so we'll, we'll talk about that here in a moment. In the Old Testament, we see that God, through incredible acts of power and grace, he, he saves Israel out of Egypt. He, he brings 10 amazing supernatural plagues upon the Egyptians. He brings Israel through the Red Sea. They walk through. The Red Sea It's parted. They go through on dry ground. The Egyptians try to follow, and God brings the sea crashing back upon them. And it destroys the entire Egyptian army. They're decimated at this moment. Israel is freed to now be God's people and to live and to serve him. And as his righteous king, he will give them laws on how to live. As a good shepherd, he will provide for all their needs. And we see that Israel will go through the wilderness for 40 years. And what characterizes Israel for 40 years is grumbling, 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 grumbling. In fact, right after the Exodus, right after the Red Sea event, there's a song of praise, I think in Exodus 15, then in Exodus 16, they grumble. You know why they grumble? They're hungry. What do you do when you're hungry? You grumble, just like Israel. We grumble, we get hangry. It's as if they forget everything that God has done for them. And they say, well, what about food? Sure, you can bring down the plagues on the Egyptians. You can part the Red Sea, but I'm hungry. And so what does God do? Exodus 16, the word grumble, I think, appears six or seven times in that chapter. And God provides manna for them. For 40 years, God will provide this honey-flavored wafer that they can use to make bread and so many other things. And he will provide food for them for 40 years. And we come to Exodus 17. What do they do? This is our interactional time. They grumble. See, you guys didn't even read Exodus 17 today. You know what they do. They grumble. And if they were, they grumble because they were hungry in 16. Why do they grumble in 17? They're thirsty. It's like a kid. So let's read it. They're, they're thirsty now. So in verses 2 and 3 of chapter 17, Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. You have to read these whiny. Like you have to. You can't be like, give us water to drink. No, give us water. Thirsty. <laughs> Whatever. A lot of things go through my head at that moment. Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So what does God do? Out of his goodness, out of his faith. So, side note, we talk about this a lot, Raymond and I, we joke about this all the time. If you've ever heard the lie that the God of the Old Testament is just angry and wrathful, read the Old Testament, and he's incredibly patient and slow to anger. Because if Israel was left to you and I, we would have killed them like 95 times. <laughs> it's true. He's slow to anger. 
He's so patient. He's so gracious, and he's so good. And so what he has Moses do, he takes his staff, he strikes a rock, and water comes gushing forth and satisfies the thirst of the people. But we are told that this place is now called Meribah, which means quarreling, and Massa, which means testing. And notice what Moses says. Why do you test the Lord? Who are they grumbling against? Moses. But who are they really grumbling against? God. Their grumbling says, I don't believe God's really a great rock, a great king, a great maker, and a great shepherd. I don't think God really cares for us. I don't think really God, God really knows us. I don't think God can really provide for me. That's what grumbling does. Same thing for you and for me. When we grumble, when we complain, we might be focused at a person or a situation, but who ultimately are we grumbling against? We're saying, God, if you really love me, my, my situation would be way different. You obviously don't care about me. You obviously don't know me. You obviously don't know what's best for me. You're certainly not a good shepherd. That's what our grumbling says. Grumbling says, hmm, I think I would like a different rock. I want something else to stand on. And so in 9511, Psalm 9511, we read, that the generation that persisted in its grumbling would not enter God's rest. Now, God's rest is a way of referring to the blessings of God in the promised land. So, so get this. Don't, don't miss this. Because Israel failed to worship God, instead grumbled against him, they were not able to enjoy the blessings and the presence of God. This is not a slap on the wrist. This is not go stand in the corner for five minutes. Think about what you just did. Israel, Israel's grumbling revealed an absence of faith. Israel was like a three-year-old who cried and complained whenever they wanted something. Have you ever seen your kids do that? Like, like they melt because dinner's late? As if you've never fed them before. And surely dinner's never coming. So what do they do? They, they're on the ground, they're squirming, and, and they're yelling. That's exactly what Israel's doing. They're so preoccupied with themselves, they failed to remember how their great rock and shepherd had graciously provided for all their needs. And because they forgot about God's grace and his glory, they failed to worship God. And listen, we will fail to worship God when we forget to behold the glory of God. So what does this mean? Does it mean for us today? What's interesting is the, the author of Hebrews, which if you remember, we preached through Hebrews not too long ago, he actually takes this passage and applies it to the church. In Hebrews chapter three, the author quotes Psalm 95, and let me just pick that up in chapter three, verse 11 of Hebrews. He says, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. You see the connection right here to Psalm 95? Take care, brothers. So now he's, he's, turning, he's turning to the church. He's connected Psalm 95, the grumbling of Israel, and he turns now to the church and he says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. They just... Look, look at the passage for a moment. 
Take care. So context, Psalm 95. Take care lest you're like them and you have unbelieving hearts that lead you to fall away from who? The living God. Remember, they did not enter the promised land. Not a slap on the wrist. You're not enjoying God. Forever barred from God. The grumbling of Israel shows an unbelieving heart that ultimately will lead to their eternal separation from God. The author's calling the church, do not be like the grumbling, glory-forgetting wilderness generation. To live in a state of grumbling is to have an unbelieving heart. Grumbling says you do not remember God's past grace and therefore you do not trust him for future grace. You get it? Think about it. Israel, I don't remember anything God just did for me in the Exodus and the Red Sea. I just want water. And when God provides water or food, now, now I'm thirsty and I want water. And I continually forget all past grace, therefore I have no trust in future grace. When we fail to remember past grace, we will not trust God for future grace and we will grumble. And to be clear, we are not talking about someone who grumbles at the occasional flat tire, not that that's okay. So I'm not giving you a pass here, but we're not talking like the occasional grumbling. Psalm 95.10 says, God, load this generation for how long? 40 years. These people are characterized by grumbling. Your grumbling says God is not a rock. He's not a king of kings. He's not a great maker. And he's certainly not a good shepherd. So when we read this, we then are supposed to then say, do I grumble? Am I a grumbler? Do I complain? Am I always fixated on what I don't have? If that's you, repent. That's what we're told today. Today, repent. Do not harden your heart. Do not ignore the warning. We, we can't dismiss it. And be like, well, that, that's them. That's not me. I'm in church. Israel's a very religious people, right? They got the ark. They got the Ten Commandments. They have all these feasts. They have all these very religious people. Their lives were largely lived around all that God has told them to do. And yet what we're told is that they do not know God. And we see that Jesus, when he comes into the Gospels, he says very hard things also to very religious people. Like in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 23. This is at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Many of you know this. It'd be, I encourage you to go read all of chapter 7. That's your homework. Read chapter 7, write a paper on it, single-spaced. Turn it into Raymond. It says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. You ever think that? Not everyone, can, not everyone just says, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many people will say to me, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And Jesus will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. What are we called to do? Live a life of worship. That's the life of the believer. We worship 
God. It's not enough just to know facts about God. We're told in James chapter 2, the demons know God, but there's something different about you and me. When we're saved and we're given this new heart, we love God. Demons don't love God. They don't willfully bow down before him and burst forth in praise because he is their rock and their maker and their king of kings and the shepherd of their souls. They despise him. We don't trust in our works. We don't trust in our parents' faith. We don't trust in a prayer that we said 30 years ago that bore no fruit. We trust in Jesus. We trust in him today, and we trust in Jesus every day. So I ask you, is Jesus your rock? Is he your king? Is he your maker? Is he your shepherd? Do you know the goodness of Jesus? Do you know that he's the grace of God that was given to die on a cross so you could be saved, adopted into the family of God, made righteous, and he provides for you every single day of your life? The great Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. What, what, where is God at that point? He is with me, right? Every day he is your rock. Every day he's your king. Every day he is your shepherd. Every day he promises to give you grace and strength. Every day God promises to be with you like a good shepherd is with his sheep. If grumbling and complaining is the tangible result of an unbelieving heart, then the context of Psalm 95, worship is a tangible display of a believer. Believers worship God because believers love God. Do you love God? I ask you, do you love God? Do you know he's your rock and that everything else is sinking sand? Do you know he's the king? There's nothing that rivals him, nothing as great as him, nothing as powerful than him. Do you know he's the maker, the one who created all things and the one who saved your soul? Do you know he's the shepherd? The one who walks with you and cares for you and provides for you. The, psalm, the psalmist is calling us, fight against forgetfulness. Don't lose sight of the glory of God. And as Christians, this is where we are, are called to encourage one another. Can't let each other forget about the very glory of God. We're not to re- fail to remember that Jesus is the rock of our salvation, the King of kings, the maker of all, and the shepherd of our souls. And so how do we fight? We can make a whole long list, but I'll give you four things. Number one, there's prayer. Prayer is a reminds us of God, reminds us of our dependence upon God, and prayer reorients us to God. So God is king, and I'm a citizen of his kingdom. God is father, and I'm his child. We need one another, the community. The author of Hebrews says, exhort one another every day. The implication would be we know each other. We know each other well enough that we can see when things are, are different with one another, when we're beginning to be hardened by sin, which is why if you're not part of a table group or part of the community of believers in some very real, tangible way, then people aren't gonna be able to do this with you. And so we're called to be in community with one another, which has to go beyond just the Sunday morning gathering. So we know one another. 
And that you can exhort me and I can exhort you. We need to be in the Word. The Word is the primary means in which we behold God. It's in God's Word. We see the majesty and the beauty and the glory of God. We see His his characteristics. We see that all of it comes true in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who died on the cross and rose again for us. It's in the Word. We see that the Spirit of God applies the truths and the promises of God to His people every day. And we sing. Guys, we sing. And we love to sing. If you're sitting there going, I don't sing. Well, you, you do sing. Scripture says sing. And so if you don't sing, repent. And we might not all have the gift of some guys who, who are really good at singing. I don't have that. But we love to sing. Because singing forth the very praises of God is the way that our heart cries out that our God is our rock and maker and king and shepherd. In a far greater display of power and grace than the Exodus, Jesus, the Son of God, came and died on the cross so we'd be saved and made into the people of God. If you've believed in him, then know this every day, even into all of eternity, God will be your perfect rock, king, maker, and shepherd. And that he will never, ever, ever fail you. Let us be a church that trusts in God. Let us be a church that worships Jesus. There is no greater pursuit of our soul than to daily behold the glory of our God in Jesus Christ. And so with that, I'm going to pray and we're going to come and we're going to behold God as we partake of communion. Let me pray. Father, Father, we just praise you. You are king. There is no rival. Satan and no power and no force or anything can even challenge your rule. You hold all of creation in your hand. May we just know that. We're the sheep of your pasture. You're the perfect shepherd. You know Every single one of us, you know our names, you know our desires, you know our wants, you know our dreams, you know our pains, you know our hurts, you know what makes us anxious. And God, you promise that you will satisfy our souls. You promise that your presence will be with us. You promise that your strength is sufficient for us at all times. You promise that you are the good and perfect father that delights in giving giving your children good gifts. God, you are the rock of our salvation. You've given us Jesus that we do not need to look or find anything else because everything else is sinking sand. God, may we know that. God, may we be so fixated on your Jesus that we despise anything that would seek to be our hope. God, you alone are worthy of all glory and honor and praise. And so, Lord, I pray for us as a church. May we be focused, fixated on your glory. May we wake up every single day reorienting ourselves through prayer and through your word and with believers that we would know your glory. God, give us an endless appetite for your glory. 
May we desire more of it every single day. May we just want to see you more and more and more. And may we long for the day that you return, that we will see you face to face and we will be transformed into the image of your son and we will perfectly share in your glory for all of eternity. May we long for that day. And may we be so fixated, so excited about your glory that we tell others about it, that we cannot be secretive about it, we cannot be quiet about it. May our excitement and the glory of you spill over into every part of our life. And God, now as we come and we partake of communion, may we remember that it's through the death and the resurrection of your son that we are given new hearts given new eyes that we would see and behold and we would love you. So God, may, may this moment of communion that we have move us to great worship and rejoicing. In your name, Jesus, amen.